look on your table. You should have an outline and pens if you need one. And we're in the book of Judges, so if you'll turn to the second chapter, we are in chapter 2. We'll begin in just a moment with verse 6, and today we'll be talking about the death of Joshua. I, I left the outline that preceded that on there just so you could see it, and so we'll begin there at the sixth verse momentarily. Always great to see you. Beautiful day. I had hoped we were going to get a little wet stuff out of that storm down in the Gulf, but I don't think it's going to happen today, maybe tomorrow, but not not today. All right, let's bow our heads for prayer, and we will begin. Father, you have graced us by your presence. We thank you that we know you're here. We thank you for sweet fellowship with one another. We thank you for a good lunch, and pray you'll use it to strengthen us. We thank you for your word and the joy and privilege we have of digging in and discovering what you have for us in each of these verses in the book of Judges. So I pray that you'll help us today, help us to learn, help us to understand how to apply what we read to our lives. And again, I thank you for every person in this room and pray your blessing upon each one and their families. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right. What I want to do is read verses 6 through 10, and then we will uh, we'll begin our discussion from there. So Judges chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. So you already can tell this is a review of what we read in the book of, in the book of Joshua, verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So we'll pause there momentarily. I'd like to take us back, if you'll turn the page to go back to Joshua 24, you'll see a parallel verses to what we have just read in, in Judges And if you'll look at chapter 24, verse 31, I I just want to point something out here. So Joshua 24, 31, it says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Does that sound familiar? Look at verse 7 of Judges 2. We just read that. But I want to point out one difference. Look at verse 7 again in chapter 2. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So see that one word, great, that appears in, in the book of Judges? It heightens 
That word great heightens the apostasy of the people that we see unfold before us in Judges. In light of great things that God had done, how could they not obey him fully? So keep that in mind. Joshua, the successor to Moses, a life well lived, one of our heroes of the faith. Joshua. Now, we see Joshua back in chapter 24. Look look there again, chapter 24, verse 19. I want us to follow what Joshua said to the people in his farewell address. Joshua 24, verse 19. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. This is called a leader who knows his people. <laughs> catch, catch my drift? He knows Israel. Verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No! We will serve the Lord. Okay, by your own mouth, we're witnesses. We will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. It's almost like a ceremony, isn't it? Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. And yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Bingo. The people are struggling to do right. Joshua knows them. And he says, You're not going to do it. And they say, Oh, yes, we will. And Joshua says, Okay. Your own lips are a witness to all of us. Now, if you look back now to Judges again, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9, what do we find? These verses make the people look good, for they were temporarily at least striving to be obedient to the Lord. And so... Everything looks good in verses 6 through 9, and it isn't until we get to verse 10 that things change. Now, the people honored God, they honored Joshua, and they honored his lieutenants, those who, the elders who outlived him. Every generation worries about the next generation. With good reason. I'm a child of the 60s, like a couple of you. (laughs) And I remember my parents worrying about my generation. Now, on the one hand, you could say, they didn't have anything to worry about. We're still here. We're still the richest nation on the face of the earth. We're still the strongest nation on the face of the earth. We're still the United States of America. Nothing to worry about. Oh, 
also the generation that has brought our nation incredible debt. We're the generation that's brought a new sexuality to America that is contrary to Scripture. We are the, well, you get the drift. I I don't need, you understand. And now we, because most of us in here are children of the 60s, maybe maybe a few of you, the 50s or 70s. (laughs) I don't need to keep going, do I? Um, we're worried about the current generation, aren't we? Is there any reason to be worried? Uh-huh. <laughs> there is. But every generation worries about the next generation with good reason. So we come to verse 10, and that verse that pierces our hearts. After that, Joshua's gone, his lieutenants are gone, or the elders who served with him, they're gone. After that, whole generation have been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Why not? Why not? Now, let's think about that for a moment. They knew not God or what he had done. Was it the fault of their parents Or is there a sense in which every individual and every generation makes their own decisions? Make their own decisions. But it does lead us to ask how much were they taught and what was modeled for them? So that brings us then to what we see as a result of verse 10. So let's look beginning at verse 11. And I'm going to read all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, and then we'll camp out there certainly for the rest of today. All right, verse 11 of chapter 2. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into... Now, now this, if this verse doesn't make you shudder, it should. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them. Okay, now we're getting the cycle. Remember the cycle? Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges. But prostituted, look how blunt the scripture is. They prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. 
But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Verse 20. Therefore, on the basis of all that I just read, here's the therefore. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Now let's read the first six verses of chapter 3. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous, who had, had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Oh, my. All right. Now look back at verse 10 one more time, at least for now. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So here is rebellion in two stages. Stage one, they forgot God. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were unaware of the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing, the crossing of the Jordan River. It means that the saving acts of God were no longer precious to them. They stopped revering God and they no longer rejoiced in what God had done. They forgot the good news. They forgot deliverance from slavery. So that led to the second stage of rebellion, which was they did evil. They turned from God and two idols, or we can call those idols non-gods. Baal, that word, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. Baal, me, is a Canaanite word for Lord. So the Canaanites... When they spoke of their Lord that didn't even exist, they would use the word Baal. Now, this is alarming because this forgetting and this doing of evil occurred within one generation of the days of Joshua. That's, that's all the time that it took. To whom can we fix blame? I mean, that's America's pastime, isn't it? <laughs> Let's fix blame for whatever. To whom can we fix blame? The parents for not teaching? Or the children for hardening their hearts? Or perhaps both? 
Were the parents guilty of failing to pass the faith along? Were the children guilty of stubborn hearts? Probably both. Mistakes made by a Christian generation are often magnified in the next generation. I've often said to Christian parents when we have consulted about certain moral issues of the day, remember this, what you do in moderation, your children will do in excess. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Commitment is replaced by complacency and then by compromise. So for the generation that came before, we remember the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorposts of your homes and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And later in that chapter... In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. To pass the faith along, we must love God with our hearts. And when we do, it shows And the generation following us will see it and they will know it. We must apply and reflect on the gospel practically, not just academically and abstractly, but practically. That our children, the generation that is coming up will see and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we must share, be willing to share, know how to share our own personal testimonies particularly before our children and our grandchildren, to let them know where we've come from and how Jesus changed our lives and the fact that we are today what we are because of Jesus. We must share our personal testimony and be consistent and warm in our faith. So the cycle begins, sadly. In verses 10 through 13, we see the first stage of the cycle that will repeat itself all throughout the book of Judges. 
the people rebel. They decide to become like the people who do not know God and who worship false gods, gods that are not real. God is angry. That's the second stage. Anger is not always the opposite of love, is it? Sometimes anger is the outworking of love as it was here in God's love. And if you're a parent, you know that. There were times when you were angry with a child, your child. That was not a manifestation of hatred. That was a manifestation of love because your child had done something he or she was not supposed to do and you loved them enough to correct them. Sometimes strongly correct them because you love them. How easy it would be to live a conflict-free life and just say, oh, do what you want to do. But when a parent loves his child or her child, we can't do that. Our love is too strong to simply overlook bad behavior. And so God's anger at Israel was not a reflection of the fact that God had suddenly decided to hate Israel. It was a manifestation of the fact that God loved Israel. They were his people. And so in his anger, it came from the love in his heart. Stage three, oppression by the enemies. Look at verse 24 of chapter, um, um, well, let's see if I can find, verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Idolatry leads to slavery. Israel is oppressed by the very people whose gods they chose to worship. Isn't that ironic? It is a fearsome thing to have God work against you on the field of battle. He uses godless, horrible people to judge his own people. Are those sobering words? God uses horrible, godless people to judge his own people, and it makes me shudder. We know of the miracles of God in our own nation's history all the way back up to the present. And I pray that God would not ever be against us We are the strongest nation in the world, but if God is against us, we are sunk. The next stage is that of repentance. In verse 15, the last phrase, they were in great distress. And over and over we'll see the people in distress, they'll cry out to God. And God will respond with stage five, by raising up judges to save them. Verse 16 reflects that. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. He'll bring salvation through through chosen leaders who liberate his people and return peace to the land. But in verse 19, we see a repeating of the cycle. But when the judge died... 
the people return to ways even more corrupt. So there is a progressive corruption even more corrupt than those of their ancestors following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refuse to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Almost reminds you of the person who says, I'm sorry, not because they're sorry, but because they got caught. And that sounds like Israel. Oh, God, help us, save us, we're so sorry. God responds. And as soon as the judge is dead, right back to what they were doing before. Now, in in verse 19, as we see a beginning of the repeating of, uh, of the cycle, we're reminded that each time the rebellion becomes worse and toward farther on in the book of Judges, we'll see that the judges even become more flawed. Think Samson. We'll, we'll get to him soon, someday. We need a better leader than a flawed judge, one who can deliver soul as well as body, and we will not find him in Judges. In fact, we'll only find him in Jesus. Now, relook verses 16 through 19 before we depart from there. Then the Lord raises up judges who save them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whatever the Lord, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now, those, there's some blunt words that I, almost, I do not want us to lose sight of. Verse 17 says, the people prostituted themselves. That's a provocative image. It's a provocative image. The people prostituted. The prostitutes are often people whose lives are out of control. They give of themselves without any real pleasure or, or love. And for Israel, the serving of idols is intense and it made them slaves. God sees sin as adultery. He wants our obedience, but he really wants us to know him and love him as a wife loves her husband, according to Scripture. An exclusive legal commitment. That's marriage. An exclusive legal legal commitment. God in Jesus, the Scripture tells us, is the bridegroom and we are his bride. As his bride, we're to love him devotedly. Now, Israel was marrying prostitutes. Their consequences, we read about them in verses 20 and following. God is angry. He says, I will no longer work on your behalf. I want you to contemplate those words. What if God were to say to you or to me or to our church or to our nation, I will no longer work on behalf of you? That would be an awful moment. Partial obedience has led to total disobedience and results in the departure of God's spirit from among his people. So we come to the 
third chapter, and and I, let me just, I think I can say a couple of things about that. We'll finish it up next week. In, in the beginning of chapter 3, he names the oppressors. We have their names. The Canaanites are awful. Now remember, that's the umbrella term, Canaanites. All the ites fall underneath the, the umbrella of Canaanites. The Canaanites were awful. That's why God said destroy them. Sometimes in our culture, in our sweet and gentle spirits, right, we read the passage, we, oh, how, oh God, how, how could God say destroy? That's so unfair. That's so mean of God to say destroy the Canaanites. Well, if we think like that, it shows we're not thinking like God. God knew that the ites, and we know from historical documents that that the worst, most awful people who ever walked the face of planet Earth were the Canaanites. I mean, they were horrible. They were vicious. They were mean. You can go to Israel today and find altars where they sacrifice their children, their babies, to gods that didn't even exist. It makes your blood run cold to stand there and watch it or look at it and to know several thousand years ago the Canaanites were putting babies on those very stones right there and slaughtering them as an offering to gods that didn't exist. Oh, what did I say about babies and slaughtering them? Oh, hmm. The Canaanites were awful, immoral. I don't know what the word moral is in Canaanite language. I'm sure I could find it. I just don't know it off the top of my head. They didn't even know how to spell it. There was nothing moral about the Canaanites. But God says, I'm not going to help you any longer. You have rebelled, and I'm just going to, my hand is against you. What a cold and sobering moment. And verse 6 concludes that passage after naming the ites. It says that Israel married, gave their daughters in marriage to those immoral, sorry people. And their sons married their daughters and had children with them and served their gods. Wow. How did, how did such a thing happen? Um. Well, we'll dig into that a little more next time. How did we get to where we are? Don't hear me as saying the we is you personally, unless the shoe fits. But, but how did we as a nation get to where we are? How, how can it be that the slaughter of babies in our country is considered okay. And that it happens by the thousands every day. How did we get to a point where the morality of the day is acceptable? What happened to us? Well, we will proceed through judges and maybe get some glimpse of what we need to do. So, Father, uh, these are sobering verses. 
certainly historically for Israel, we grieve and, and we think, oh my goodness, how awful. But Father, it frightens me to think of the modern day application should you choose to do so. And so I pray that there will be repentance among us. Repentance is a Christian word. We can't expect lost pagans in America to repent. They, they, they don't know Jesus to begin with. But Father, I pray there will be repentance in the church, renewal, strengthening, living the gospel, that we might make a better, stronger impact on those around us for the glory of God, for the saving of souls. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great afternoon.